Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. An understudied segment of our nation's unhoused are those who live in their cars, sometimes by choice, but often because they can no longer afford rent and are forced to call their vehicles home. In California and across the country, dozens of parking lots have been set aside to provide some level of safety and support for this growing population. But challenges remain. As part of our In Transit series, we talk with UCLA's Madeline Brosen, who studies vehicular homelessness, with New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki, who spent time with a family living in their sedan in a church parking lot near Seattle. And we talk with you. Do you call your car home? Join us. From KQED in San Francisco, welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For her story, I Live in My Car, New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki spoke with dozens of people who've resorted to living in their vehicles and the people trying to help them. Kalamaki provides an intimate look at daily life for one of the fastest-growing segments of the unhoused population, people experiencing what's been called vehicular homelessness. Kalamaki found that many she spoke with, including in California, Colorado, and Washington State, are caught in what she calls an unforgiving middle, where they earn too little to afford rent, but can afford a car. Rukmini Kalamaki joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Rukmini. Thank you for having me. So you spoke with many people across several states, but one person that you spent three days with was a woman who lived in Kirkland, Washington, near Seattle. Crystal, can you tell us about her, how she was living when you met her? Yes, Crystal Adet is not what comes to mind when you think of a homeless person. Crystal is college educated, and she's actually employed by the state of Washington and is earning $72,000 a year. Yet even so, she found herself unable to pay rent in what is one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. And starting uh, this spring, she began living out of her car. And how was she making her car work? Because it wasn't just her. She was also living with her college-aged daughter, right? Yeah, it was It was her and her daughter and their dog. And they joked that the front passenger seat was her daughter's quote-unquote bedroom, and the back seat was her bedroom. Um, she kept one of the doors of the Ford Fusion ajar at night so that she could partially stretch out her legs and her daughter uh, leaned the back, the, the, the passenger seat as far back as she could, and then put a comforter in the crack in the seat to make it a little bit more level. 
obviously it's a very uncomfortable way to sleep um, and, and a very uncomfortable way to live. Yeah, you described the roof of their car as their dining table, the trunk as their closet. You also had this line where you said there are so many ways in which a person's life becomes smaller when they are forced to fit a home into a car. Can you talk about that, how their life got smaller, all the ways that they tried to limit their needs almost? That's right. You don't, you don't think of all of the ways in which if you're forced to live in a car, your, your, your daily habits have to change. The most major one for Crystal is that she wasn't able to allow herself to drink as much water as she wanted to, because otherwise she would have had to go to the bathroom and the bathroom where she was, was a porta potty. So she stopped drinking enough water and the result was that she got dehydrated because she wasn't able to fully stretch out. Um, in the summer, her, her, her legs and her ankles began to swell almost like she was pregnant. Um, she told me that she wasn't able to fit into her tennis shoes at one point. Uh, and it also means that you don't have a kitchen. So she and her daughter were, were resorting to fast food meals. It's not a very healthy way to be. And that resulted in, in, in other problems. Yeah. And when I think about you describing that she leaves the door open at night, and I imagine Seattle or near there, Kirkland, isn't necessarily always the warmest place to do that or the driest. That's right. That's right. And that was the final breaking point for her in September when when the when the deluge of rain began. That was when she finally said, I, I have to get out of this. I have to find I have to find a way out of this. In addition to the, the elements, leaving your door open means that you're also leaving yourself vulnerable if you're in a public place. There are now so many people, so many working Americans that are living out of their cars that real estate has literally been set aside for them, not in the form of homes, not in the form of apartments or any kind of affordable housing, but in the form of parking lots. Across the country, dozens of parking lots have opened that cater specifically to uh, what researchers call the vehicular homeless, the mobile homeless, people who are homeless, but who still have a car and need a place to park it. This is where she was living when I met her. She was living in what is called a safe park, which is one of these dedicated parking lots. It was outside of a church in Kirkland, Washington. As it happens, it's one of the oldest in the country. It opened more than a decade ago. And so she was able to feel safe leaving her door open because uh, there was a security guard and other people parking there. But many of the vehicular homeless who are not lucky enough to find one of these parking lots will tell you that it's 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 they also feel in danger at night parking in public places. And there really are not enough of these lots to meet the demand or need right now, it sounds like. Nowhere near, nowhere near. Um, Madeline Brosen um, at UCLA, who I think will be on um, later, will talk about her own research um, where I believe they found that only a fraction of the people who are in need of this type of parking are, are able to find it. For one, getting into these parking lots requires a series of, of crossing a series of hurdles. You have to have a car that is in working order. You have to have insurance at most of them, and you have to have registration. That's that that's a, a lot of things to ask for a person that that already is is in a very difficult situation. So already the people in these lots are, are reduced by 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 that. 
We're talking with New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki about her piece called I Live in My Car. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Do you or have you had to live out of your car? Is there anything about what Rukmini is describing that resonates with you or maybe someone you know? Rukmini is also talking about safe parking spaces for the vehicular homeless, as it's been called. And so do you support a safe parking lot in your community? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You mentioned that... Um, Crystal made $72,000 a year. She works as a social worker and so on. How did she get into the situation where she had to live out of her car? Yeah. You know, um, there's been a lot of research to indicate that that credit card debt in America is soaring, especially since the pandemic. And that was the case for Crystal. She had already a lot of debt that she had accrued as a single mom, first trying to raise her daughter and later putting her, her daughter to college. So that was the first piece of it. And then it was just a series of financial blows. Uh, her car broke down. It needed a new engine. The new engine was $6,000. Um, she had a series of medical bills that came due. She suffers from Crohn's condition, and she couldn't ignore them because she needs those infusions to be able to function. Uh, her rent uh, was increased. So it was, a, it was a combination of a high debt load plus too many bills. And what, what she said to me is it was a case of one bill too many. It was one bill too many. And suddenly from one day to the next, she 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 avoided an eviction. She put her stuff in storage and she found herself in her car. Yeah. And then it's very difficult to be able to find a place to live. First of all, you have very little left over for rent. But even if you can find a place, you have your credit rating to deal with. You have the inability to yeah. make a security deposit, it sounded like. It, it is. And I think um, uh, it's surprising sometimes to find somebody that, that is earning as high of an income as Crystal is uh, in, in this particular situation. But when when you consider all of the ways in which, um, you know, uh, if, if, you're a, if you're a single mother trying to care for your child and all, all of the ways in which uh, uh, college expenses have gone up, um, living expenses have gone up, it's very easy in the U.S. today to end up in credit card uh, debt. Um, and that's where she found herself. Once you have lost your housing, it's very, very hard to get back in. Um, even even uh, a housing that is meant to be quote, quote unquote affordable, in general, they will not take people in that have a very poor credit score because the credit score is seen as a predictor of whether or not you'll be able to pay rent. So in Crystal's case, what finally came through for her is the church where she was parking um, took notice of her, possibly in light of the fact that that a Times reporter was following her around, and helped her pay the security deposit um, at the at the place that she found. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was that intervention that helped her get in. Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things that I was struck by was it wasn't just Crystal, but other people that you talked to who didn't tell the people in their lives that they were living out of mm. their cars. So people yeah. who didn't tell family or friends, Crystal kept it a secret from her colleagues as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you say that in a way the car gave them a semblance of normalcy? That's right. There's an enormous amount of shame that comes 
with being in this particular predicament. Um, uh, uh, Crystal, if you met her on the street, and if, if I had met her without knowing these things about her, you would never, you would never think that she is unhoused. Uh, she looks like, you know, she looks like you and I, she dresses normally. Um, she's a professional, she goes to work. And she told me that uh, uh, she had not even told her own mother, her brother, her coworkers. I, I at one point had to have a conversation with her where I said, Crystal, this is going to go, this is going to go on the front page of the New York Times. So they are going to find out. Um, is, do you really want them to find out through a newspaper article? And it was easier for her, I think, for the news of this enormous setback in her life uh, to to come out in a news article than having to actually pick up the call the, the phone and call people because of because I think of the shame involved in 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 being in that particular situation. Yeah. Well, this listener writes, how does living in a car affect a person's mental health? I knew someone who lived in their car who felt guilty when they were forced to become unhoused. I don't know if you gained any insights mm. into that, uh, Rukmini, we're coming mm. up on a break, but it's an interesting question. What Crystal asked me, um, you know, we spoke at length about whether whether she would be attacked as a result of being featured in my article. Um, and she asked me, do you think people are going to blame me? the amount of debt that you know that I have accrued um and of course I couldn't give her a definitive answer uh I I I do think that as a society we are very judgmental um of people who have ended up in the situation with the go-to sentiment being that it must be their fault uh and we're we're less likely to see the systemic failures that have resulted in 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 this kind of situation where somebody who on paper is making what many of us would consider to be a middle class salary could possibly end up in dire straits of this of this nature we're taking a closer look at what it means to be part of the population experiencing vehicular homelessness and we'll have more after the break stay with us you're listening to forum i'm mina kim Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There are a lot of people who are choosing to live in their cars, vans, or RVs, but for some, it's not a choice. And this hour, we are learning more about a rapidly growing segment of the unhoused population, people experiencing what's been called vehicular homelessness or mobile homelessness, with Rukmini Kalamaki, a New York Times reporter who interviewed dozens of people who are experiencing it, and also spent time with Crystal Audette in Kirkland, Washington, um, when she was experiencing vehicular homelessness there. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Do you or have you had to live out of your car? What was your experience? What do you think is important for others to understand about it? Perhaps you know someone who has or vehicular homelessness has impacted your own community. You can share your questions or comments by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum, calling us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. The listener writes, I had a friend in college who lived in a van. There were nights when he woke up extremely thirsty but didn't have access to water because he forgot to fill up his water bottle. And if he had to use the bathroom at night, he had to wait until businesses opened in the morning. And I'd like to bring to the conversation now Madeline Brosen, Deputy Director at UCLA's Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. Madeline, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for covering this topic. So Rukmini in her article cites a lot of statistics. She says that there, it appears that actually the majority of the unhoused population may be so-called mobile homeless, 53% potentially in Kings County, Washington, where Crystal Audette lived, 45% in San Mateo, which is, of course, a Bay Area county. And in Los Angeles, there are estimates, I believe, in a study that you co-authored, that that number approaches maybe 60%. Can you give us a better sense of the size and scope of the population in California or in the areas you studied in California? Yeah, so our, our work is, is centered in Los Angeles, and, and Los Angeles has the largest population of people experiencing homelessness in the United States. So it's no surprise that actually we also have the largest population of people living in cars. So in 2020, which is when we um, did our work, 60% of the people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles County were actually living out of their cars, and that equates to about nearly 19,000 people. Um, in the more recent numbers that we've been, um, that the LA County has been collecting, you know, in 2023, they counted 14,000 vehicles. And so this equates to actually much more people because, you know, as Rukmini shared, a lot of these people are, are living with, with families or other people. It's not just a single person living in a car. Yeah. Can you talk about that? How you have noticed that there are some differences that stand out, say, from people who live in tents or other forms of shelter? Yeah, so that was really a big part of what we were trying to do in this work is, is A, is just try to get people to understand that people living in cars are a large part of the ex people of experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles and other places in California and the United States. And just understand, are these people similar or different than people that live in tents or cars? And the number one predictor and the difference in these two populations, and similar to Crystal's story, is people living with children. Mm -hmm. So if you're a person that's experiencing homelessness and you're living in a car, you're nearly 12 times more likely to be living with a child in your household than someone living in a tent or a makeshift shelter. Some other differences that we know that also align with Crystal's story, um, people living in cars are more likely to be women. They're more likely to be older. 
and they're more likely to be employed. Um, we also know that they're more likely to be receiving disability benefits and they're less chronically homeless. So if we think about people that have kind of fallen into homelessness kind of more recently, that's that's really a big predictor of people living in our car versus um, on a sidewalk elsewhere. Well, we've got calls coming in and let me start with Paul in San Francisco. Paul, you're on. Thank you. Good morning to all. And thank you for this show. Uh, I'm a I'm a 70-year-old senior citizen, and I live in my car. I've been doing this on and off since 2010, and I've been employed. But the one thing I noticed missing from this conversation, generally speaking, when I, not this particular one, but the mention of senior citizens. Mm. Uh, there are services available, but the waiting list, I'll put it this way. I left Los Angeles in 2017. And this is 2023, and I've not heard from a single agency. Uh, the wait list is astronomical. The services don't work. There's no one to guide you. You bump your head a lot. You miss a lot of things. Uh, it's a terrible situation to face at this age when you've done all the right things. I have a college degree. Um, it's interesting. The one thing I do keep in mind, though, this is what's happening to me. And it does not define me. And that is what keeps my head together most of the time. <laughs> well, well, Paul, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story. I'm sorry to hear that you have not been getting the kind of outreach that you need and the support that you need. And, and Madeline, Paul is raising the important point that others are starting to also gain more awareness of, which is the unhoused population and the mobile homeless, which are part of that population, are graying, they're older, right? That they are seniors and that this is a growing, rapidly growing population as well. Yeah, this uh, older adults are kind of the fastest growing part of the population of people experiencing homelessness. And and as the caller mentions, you know, the, the systems in which we're trying to support people with are just at capacity and not really able to help in a way that I think gets people back on their feet. So, you know, Rukamini mentioned, you know, that there's just not enough of these spaces, you know, that Crystal was really able to get connected to services because she was in a safe parking lot and it was that connection. And, you know, I think kind of speaking to the caller's story in Los Angeles of, you know, these nearly 19,000 people that are living in their cars, we have 500 spaces in safe parking lots. So there's just a huge gap in terms of how spaces that we can help people kind of feel more secure and kind of connect them to services. So it's not surprising that we have people that are just waiting for help that aren't getting what they need. Well, this is writes, I have a full-time job and have decided to live in my van to save money until I'm 55 when I hope to find slightly cheaper rent in a trailer park. I have to say that day-to-day -day being hassled by the Marin police for parking on the street is my biggest concern. If more cities would offer safe places to park, life would actually be a lot better. But it's a shame that the police are my biggest obstacle. And uh, Martin writes, my experience in my car was about three months in 2016 after a contentious relationship breakup. It was the most difficult time in my life. My car was small, uncomfortable, barely in running order. I took showers at the YMCA, but had to sneak in because of the membership fees. I ate fast food or shoplifted my food. I stayed with a relative after three months who offered me her living room couch. Long story, very short. It took me a while to get back on my feet, but finally did. City, county, state agencies were of little or no help offering filthy unsafe shelters that I turned down not by 
choice. You know, Rukmini, listening to um, these two uh, listeners writing about their experiences and wishing to see more safe spaces, it reminds me a little bit of the person that you interviewed in your piece named Josh in Colorado. Can you just tell us a little bit about how he tried to make it work before he got to a safe parking spot? Yeah, yeah. Um, Josh was uh, was one of the saddest stories I heard. He's 37 years old. Uh, He was employed as a buyer for a gardening company in Denver up until January of this year. He gets laid off and practically the same week that he gets laid off, um, he is not feeling well and he goes into the doctor and is not diagnosed with colon cancer at the same time. He ends up living in his RAV4 uh, in his Toyota. So it's a you know a small SUV. And he described this cat and mouse game that he went through for months where he was moving between uh, the, the parking lot of a Super 8 motel where he would pretend to be a guest at the motel to uh, outside of a planet fitness to a wall to a Walmart parking lot to a light industrial area. He called it, quote, the knock, which was when police or a security guard would come and rap on his windshield in the middle of the night. Uh, and beyond the fear of, you know, being told by police or security to leave, he he was quite literally afraid for his life. He told me that one time he was sleeping um, uh, on on a side street and he heard the voices of what sounded like young kids, teenagers. They walked past his car. He heard them then turn around. They were giggling and laughing. And then he heard them encircling his car. And he thought, are they going to smash in the windows now and lynch me as, 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 as a joke of some kind? These are the kind of experiences that he had. And he um, he's, of course, a man. Um, I think it's even more scary uh, for people who identify as female. Uh, he eventually was able to get a spot in the Colorado Safe Parking uh, Initiative. This is one of the newer ones in the country, and they run around a dozen parking lots in Denver. And at least now he's able to park safely uh, at night. But his life now consists of going from the parking lot to his chemotherapy appointments and back and then doing door dashing on the side to try to at least have enough to eat. Yeah. Um, Madeline, you looked a lot at the way that people who live in safe, even who live in their vehicles and even in safe parking lots can be treated by community members and even, you know, local public entities. Can you just talk a little bit about what you learned? Yeah, so we, in addition to trying to understand more about who is in this population, we're trying to understand the environment in which public policy is responding in terms of regulations. And in Los Angeles County, you know, there's a variety of different regulations that have really said where people mostly can't actually be in their vehicles. And even though the number of these regulations um, continues to increase, so does the number of people living in their cars. And what we found kind of the biggest, most important thing was when a city would um, institute the most stringent regulation that just had an overnight ban on anyone sleeping in cars, 
while it might decrease the number of people in their community, it actually just increased the number of the population in their neighbor. So really what we're seeing is a sadly classic tale of regulations just moving the problem around rather than using transportation assets to actually try to address it even in the short term. So we're just seeing a lot more stringent regulation. I will say we don't know, you know, understanding how well these policies are enforced is a very difficult thing to track. Um, so as kind of, you know, these people have spoken about, we can't really, you know, take a sense of that. But I think that there's a point to be said that rather than trying to do something about the problem in terms of just moving it, there's really a need for public policy to respond in a way of trying to reduce the harm, giving these people some safe parking places, rather than just saying, you can't be in our community. Let me go next to caller Andrew in San Jose. Andrew, you're on. Hi there. Yeah, I, my comment was just that uh, I was a, I'm a combat veteran from the 2003 Iraq War, and I ended up living in my car in a 1993 Ford Explorer. And I uh, one thing I like to point out is that my in my experience, um, I did whatever I could to hide the fact that I was homeless from people. So I couldn't afford rent. I couldn't afford most of my bills. The only thing I kept was uh, my my payment on my iPhone so I could participate on Facebook and, like, you know, like become, you know, have the perception of a member of society. I, you know, incidentally also donated to KQED. Uh, but uh, oh it, was, it was rough. But, like, I could tell you that uh, um, 10 years later, somehow – you know, through friends and, you know, like just hard work, I was able to, you know, get back up and, um, you know, ended up being able to buy a home. Uh, but it's not easy to get a job without a address is not easy. But um, to my to my first point, like what I'd like to say is that most, you know, people have this stereotype about homeless people like they're they're different they're scary they're maybe on drugs or have mental problems but like it's uh most people who are unhoused you're not going to notice them because they're just you know people with families sometimes people with but a lot of times people with jobs or multiple jobs and you know it's embarrassing to look homeless so most people don't you know they do what they can to avoid that perception so that's all i wanted to say Oh, Andrew, it means a lot, everything that you shared um, and that you're sharing this story so much. And I, I cannot imagine how stressful it must have been to try to hide it, I guess, is the way that you put it right to to go through the process of, of hiding it. Um, did you feel like yeah. there was a lot of stigma if you did end up revealing the fact? That yeah, there, there was. And there was also like a belief that I've had that like the you know, from my just upbringing, like the way that you act when you have nothing is the way that you act when you have everything. So like I still, that's why I was still trying to like, if I had a dollar and someone asked for it, I would give it to them. Um, but yeah, like I just, you know, I just, there's a stigma. People think if you're homeless, you're crazy, especially a homeless veteran. They're like, maybe we would have been afraid of me. And then there's the idea of like sleeping in the car. I think someone else made a comment like, if you have to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, like you either have to wait until business is open in the morning or run the risk of like, oh, is like someone going to call the cops? Am I going to be like a sexual offender for the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. So, uh, uh, Andrew, real, the regular people, I mean, we're, we are all there's only us. There's no them. You know? <laughs> well, this listener thinks 
Amazing. They write, Andrew is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story, Andrew. Um, let me go to Terrence in San Francisco. Terrence, you're on. Hi. Um, so I work in a major bank here in San Francisco, and I just so happen to be listening to you guys' programming. By the way, I love you guys' programming. Oh, um, thank you. So a few weeks ago, a guy walked into the branch that I've seen all the time. He's always friendly. He's always nice. And we had to close his account because he didn't have a physical address. He was using his P.O. box. And this guy would come in all the time. I think he even had a credit score above 750 or something like that. But we had to close his account because he didn't have a physical address because of the uh, something called the Bank Secrecy Act that was passed in the 70s. And then the Patriot Act that was passed, I guess, more so recently since 9-11. But this guy was the sweetest guy. And he worked. He had regular uh, direct deposit from his job. But we had to close his account. And there was nothing I could do about it because it's so far above my pay grade. You know, oh, my God. But I was so I felt so bad for the guy. And he told me that he used to live in his car. That's why he got a P.O. box. And hearing this program lets me know that there are many more people out there just like him who probably use a P.O. box so that they can get a job and everything. But I'm really worried now because he was such a good customer. He's a good client. He's a good person that you want to have as a bank to be banking with you. He made all of his payments on time. He did everything he was supposed to do. I just felt so bad. There was nothing I could do. So if the guy is out there, if he ever listens to NPR, keep going. I saw your savings account. I saw you saving up. I saw you kept going more and more to get you know, out of that situation. So more power to you. I'm so sorry this is happening to all these people. So you know, my prayers and thoughts really go out to people in that situation. Oh, Terrence, I hope that that person is listening. And I thank you also for sharing from your vantage point and really what, you know, this conversation and Madeline and Rukmini, you are both underscoring, which is that this is an incredibly rapidly growing segment of the population. But in many ways, Madeline, they are somewhat invisible because of the car and in that respect, not really being addressed in terms of their needs. Yes, I mean, as as the caller mentioned, you know, these people are they're they're trying to hide in plain sight. They don't want to draw attention for risk of enforcement or you know from from people that might might be hassling them. And so, you know, what we really can e even speak to is the numbers that we do know are probably an underestimate of this problem because it's really hard to actually count someone when they're trying to hide. So, you know, all that we're saying is just even underscoring that this problem is probably Probably even worse than what we can um, say in these numbers. We're talking with Madeline Brozen, Deputy Director at UCLA's Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki, and you, our listeners, sharing your experiences, your questions, your comments. You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum, or call 866-733-6786. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As part of our In Transit series, we're talking about vehicular homelessness this hour with Rupmini Kalamaki, a New York Times reporter whose recent pieces, I Live in My Car, and also with UCLA's Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies Deputy Director Madeline Brosen, who has studied the uh, the extent of vehicular homelessness in California, specifically in the Los Angeles area, which has some of the largest proportion of people who are experiencing homelessness living in their vehicles. Have you had to live out of your car? What is something that you'd like to share or that you think is important for others to understand about their, that experience? Do you have questions about how to support a safe parking lot in your community? Or are you unsure if you would support something to that degree. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call the 866-733-6786 number. The sister tweets, social injustice is caused when people force others to live the parts of their life they don't want to. It is ridiculous that we are considering a parking lot. We need a society of accountability instead of a society where can means should. And Arlen on Discord writes, I used to live in a shared house with an elderly woman who got kicked out for being late on rent. She then lived in a car with her dog for about a month. And then out of some miraculous change of heart, the landlord allowed her to move back in on the contingency that she cleaned the house for us. However, when she moved back in, she looked like she had aged 20 years. She probably slept for two days straight, maybe even more when she first moved back in. Unfortunately, about a month after that, she died in that house. It was very tragic, and I fully understand just how awful and devastating to one's health it can be to live out of one's car. Another listener writes, my former neighbor sold me a van to live out of when I was evicted at 61 years old. I had no income but was determined to use a credit card to stay in motels as long as possible while awaiting a disability hearing and finding housing. Ten years later, I have an apartment where the rent increases by 10% yearly. Thus, I am once again looking at having to live in that 22-year-old van as a disabled 71-year-old woman. Scary. Madeline, I want to ask you about safe parking lots. You've talked about how they are important ways to try to create some kind of safe harbor. Rukmini has written about how important they can be, especially for the people that she spoke with. But you also say that they leave and can leave a lot to be desired. What do you mean by that? What What's an ideal sort of situation for a safe parking space? knowing fully that it's not the ideal situation, right, um, for anybody who is experiencing homelessness and, and does not want to be. But, but, um, but, and what are the challenges to creating that type of environment? Yes, I mean, as as one of the the people, you know, just that wrote in mentioned, like this is this is a short term solution. This is this is not kind of the ultimate response that we should be having. But given that we know that it's important to give some sense of security, it's a good short term step. And I think one of the first things to think about is the hours of operation. So the majority of safe parking lots are actually not operated on twenty four hour basis. So people need to come in by a certain t- time of the night 
night and you need to leave by a certain time of the morning. People's lives really aren't structured in that way. So you have a lot of people that, you know, might be needing times, you know, needing something during the day, but you actually haven't solved that. And, you know, as we're talking about that, a lot of the people living in their cars are living with children, you just think about, okay, so at some point in the evening, you have to kind of move the child who may be sleeping, and you're just not really creating an environment that's that's most ideal. San Diego is starting to look to expand some of their safe parking lots to 24 hours, but it's really important just to think about the experience and how kind of having a space, not just for a few hours a day, is really helpful. These lots experience a very similar community opposition that we see to other forms of help for people experiencing homelessness. So people are concerned about, you know, an element that a safe parking lot might bring similar to a shelter. Mm. Um, And so they also need to kind of overcome that community opposition. However, you know, if you think about the trade-offs of, would you rather have someone that's living in their car parked in front of your house or or in a space that is safer for them um, and can get them on their feet towards housing? I mean, I think that the more rational um, and and compassionate approach would be to allow a space um, for for people to really have safety and security on a path to being housed. Had your comment on a quote, unquote, element. This listener on Discord writes, I guess it's easier to judge people who live in cars than to have the political will to build affordable housing and crack down on excessive deposits for rental housing. Another listener writes, I see a lot of posts on social media from people who intentionally live in their car. They create a tiny life or a minimalistic aesthetic around their living situation. Is this romanticization of living in your car looked down upon by those who are forced to do so. Huh, Rukmini, did you talk about that at all with the people that you interviewed about this romanticization of car life and how it makes them feel? Right. I did not specifically talk about it with with the people that I interviewed, but but I think that if you are living in your car by choice, that means it is a choice. That means that you can go to your house or to a relative's home or to an apartment later on. It's a very different situation if you are stuck living in a in a passenger car as small as a Ford Fusion, where Crystal Adette was living for many months with her daughter, um, and and that is your only form of affordable housing. Let me go to caller Catherine in San Francisco now. Catherine, you're on. Yes, um, about three years ago, I had back surgery. And I hired a wonderful dog walker, and um, she walked my dog because I couldn't walk my dog because I had back surgery. But at any rate, I just had a feeling after I recovered that, you know, there was a lot of chaos in her life. And I said to her, if you need me for anything, anything, just give me a call. So to fast forward to just last week, she texted me and um, said, you know, if does, does the offer still stand that if something came up and you could help me, you know, can I still call you? And, uh, and I immediately responded and I took her and her boyfriend in. They are, um, you know, gig workers, um, dog walkers. One just got laid off. Uh, in construction and is part of the union. And it's just 
a hand-to-mouth existence and what is um, kind of injury upon a wound and a wound upon injury is that definitely they're staying with me, but I need to tell them that street cleaning is tomorrow, you know, and how ironic it would be to get a ticket on top of having to live in your car. And I just wish empathy is costing us. Empathy, if we have a lack of it, it's costing us on an emotional level and it's costing us on a physical, tangible level. Well, Catherine, thank you for sharing the story of your dog walker. I, it's just when I think about people trying to help, yes, it's it's moving, but obviously Rukmini and, and Madeline, it's not the long-term solution. Jackie writes, it's so unfortunate because in Santa Clara County, the county government owns vast amounts of land. Some of it is right next to county medical clinics and hospitals. This undeveloped land sits there and it could be easily used for a tiny home lot, a mobile home lot, or a safe lot. It would be a very effective way of delivering services to people in need. But the counties hide the fact that they have this property. I'm sure many other cities have similar sites that could be made useful now. The cities and the counties deny the homeless need and the police departments don't help either. I worked for city government and I saw from the inside how the homeless hot potato was tossed around and nothing happened. You did talk about this, Madeline, and we have had shows about just how paved our our cities are, that there really are essentially enough parking spots to more than um, cover the at least the estimated population, right, of people who are experiencing vehicular homelessness. Yes, I mean, there's in Los Angeles County, you know, I have some other colleagues that that work more on parking and transportation, you know, just estimated the the tens of thousands of spaces that that we have. Um, and as as you mentioned, you know, that the, this, this is land that, you know, is really an opportunity. And I think that one of the approaches that will be particularly helpful towards getting more safe parking spaces is to think about and maybe not considering an all or nothing, you know, maybe if it's like there's still a need for some parking, can you take half of a lot um, to create some safe parking spaces? We just, the problem is so big and the harm that is causing these people is compounding that there really needs to be working with a sense of urgency in Los Angeles, in California and across the country. And so thinking about how do you flexibly use that space? You know, how can you take just any parts that you can, I think will really be helpful. Well, let me go next to caller Richard. You're on, Richard. Thanks for waiting. Hey, how are you? Um, Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say uh, the uh, caller earlier about um, hiding. Um, I'm an RN. Um, I moved from Las Vegas up to uh, the Bay Area in the early 2000s to get away from a toxic divorce. And I was homeless for two years. And, but, but it was self-imposed. I had a good job. It's just, and I had been doing that job for a, a long time and I could, I could function at work. The moment I was off of work, all I wanted to do was retreat from everybody. Mm-hmm. I never told my parents. I never told my sisters. They never asked. Um, and it, it was just, it was horrible. But at the same time, you just you don't know how to you don't know how to move on and you hide. 
Um, I, I lived out of my suburban. Well, it, it, yeah. And yes. it goes. Oh, I was going to say uh, earlier in the week there was a program on, um, and somebody made a comment about um, ignoring issues and not talking about things. And I think until the homeless problem really um, is addressed, we've got to address the issue of of talking about uncomfortable things. Hmm. I, I have a horrible relationship with my family. Um, I've got two sisters that, that will not talk to me. Um, and my parents are, you know, we talk, we text. Oh. I haven't We're- seen my family in 15, 17 years. Well, we're coming up on a break, Richard, but I want to tell you that we... Oh, actually, you know what? <laughs> Sorry, we're coming up on a station ID, so um, I just want to make sure that I get that in there. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Go ahead and finish your thought, Richard. Um, it's. I've met a number of people that are... They're self-imposed homeless, and... You like that the 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 vet, you know the two thousand two vet said, you just you hide. Yeah. Um, well, I am a hundred percent with you in the in your recommendation that we need as a society and as a community and as a family to be able to talk about to talk about uncomfortable things. And I just so appreciate that you're not hiding anymore. Let me go to caller Fremont, uh, caller Cool Rush in Fremont. Cool Rush, thanks so much for waiting. You're on as well. What would you like to say? Hi, uh, thank you for uh, uh, having my call. You know, well, uh, one one thing I, uh, I I like to mention that uh, everybody uh, pretty much explained everything uh, correctly. I've been uh, uh, homeless for the first time in my life uh, of last three years. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I lost my home and my uh, divorce, and uh, because of two car accidents, and I had in both of them, it wasn't my fault. Uh, basically, uh, the, uh, everyone everyone has a different uh, issues that they yeah. can uh, get them to be homelessness. It's not something like you're born with the homelessness, but uh, we have to think about uh, what is the solution for that. Yes. We can go on and on and uh, just uh, say how I feel like uh, it's terrible. Yes, I'm hiding. Yes, I'm, I I don't want to come out of the, the my the RV. Uh, yes, uh, um, uh, there is no kindness uh, in the air. Everyone uh, like they think that um, in homeless people they're uh, taking all the money. From the government, uh, this last three years that I've been homeless and uh, I'm paralegal, at, uh, at, you know, as uh, 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 pretty much uh, attorney, uh, I try to help people any way I can. But at the same time, uh, I see uh, no no one, uh, including me, zero income. Uh, there is no budget for uh, giving uh, from government to the homeless people. There is no 
uh, help from the government. All the uh, stimulus uh, money it goes to um, to that. Hello. Well, course, thank, yes, no, no, you, I, I think I understand what you're trying to say. And I appreciate your point as well. And do thank you so much for calling in. How did Crystal manage? You, you mentioned that with the help of a church entity, seeing her being tailed by you or followed by you as a New York Times reporter played a role in helping her get a new space. But can you talk about sort of how she is feeling now. You mentioned that she still feels like she's living on the edge and what it has mm. been like for her to get into permanent housing, Rukmini. Just, yeah. just better. Yeah. So I, I, I went to Kirkland, Washington in August to shadow Crystal and I spent several days with her. And the period when I was there coincided with a big event inside the church. Um, and I um, I had been asked by the organizers of uh, of the church to always identify myself as a as a Times reporter, so that other people who were homeless and showing up at the event would not be you know accidentally interviewed by me. So I was very obvious as a New York Times reporter. I had my badge around my neck. Um, uh, the Times photographer was with us, and this brought a lot of attention to Crystal. Um, suddenly, housing advocates that were there took notice of her, and they began speaking to her. Several gave their cards. And those conversations um, led to her eventually finding her own apartment and the church paying uh, the down payment that she needed to pay. I think she is now... I don't know if she's fully allowed herself to um, you know, accept that she's off the streets now. She was telling me that um, just yesterday or the day before, she said, I have finally allowed myself to buy some groceries. She was buying, even though she was in a, an apartment, she was buying just a little bit of food every day, still worried about, you know, is she going to end up back on the streets? Um, so I think she's still very much feeling unsure and insecure, but I'm very, very happy to see that she's got a roof over her head. Yeah, well, Madeline, I just want to leave the last point to you. I was really struck by how you were saying making it easier to live in a car sure isn't the long-term solution, but neither is criminalizing it as well. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I think that the federal government has a big role to play in this in terms of increasing the number of housing vouchers that we put out so that we can get people from into their cars into housing because we can see in these stories that direct financial support is just a great solution to this problem. And I am heartened to know that at least one of the statistics is that they, people who experience vehicular homelessness tend to be able to find permanent housing more successfully. Thank you, Madeline Brosen of UCLA. Thank you, Rukmini Kalamaki of New York Times. And thank you, listeners. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your stories so honestly and openly with us. Mark Nieto produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.